Welcome to this recording of the Activist Lawyer Podcast, brought to you from the Granite Podcast Studio in the heart of Newry City. We are delighted that you could join us at Activist Lawyer, where we will be discussing a range of topical matters engaging not only with lawyers, but people who are committed to highlighting and combating injustices and inequalities. We will bring you our thoughts, but invite you to share yours. We'll be looking for contributors to our blog at activistlawyer.com, as we want your perspective as we unravel and unpack a host of issues. My name is Sarah Henry and I'm a solicitor practicing in Uri City. I worked with a human rights firm in Dublin for many years and with a number of rights-based organisations and charities. I'm looking forward to meeting some fantastic guests throughout this series. Hi everybody, thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm here with my co-host Jack. Hello everybody. Jack is here and today we have a really great guest on. It is an old colleague of mine and she's actually still still my friend through immigration law many years ago. We're joined by Karen Berkeley, who is just really an expert overall in the area of immigration. Yeah. I worked with Karen many years ago when I joined Brophy Solicitors Human Rights Practice in Dublin as a young, fresh-faced, <laughs> interested uh, trainee. And Karen had already qualified and was just flat out in immigration and was so passionate. You could just sense this real. She was very, very inspirational to me and many of the other people who worked there. So Karen has gone on to open her own practice in Dublin. Yeah. Um, Berkeley Solicitors, it's in Christchurch. They specialise in immigration, of course, and they're very, very busy. So she's going to take us through some of the interesting cases that she is working on and also some of the points that she has taken before um, various courts to establish that also affects our work here, mm -hmm. Jack, in, in many ways. You find it interesting yourself, just the conversation. Yeah, in so like you can obviously tell from the podcast when you listen that she's super passionate about the area and um she's went from being a law student obviously studying law to now owning her own firm and i think that's mm. a dream for many and i think she highlights how her passion for that once for immigration law that one specific area of law helped her through her journey into yeah. owning her own firm which i think is very inspirational yeah. and a lot of people will want to open up their own firms so i think it'll be a good lesson for any young students yeah she's a great story behind her just a little bit of background so karen established berkeley solicitors in october 2016 having previously acquired 10 years experience working as an immigration solicitor at brophy's she has since expanded her firm to include the current team of eight staff Berkeley Solicitors has acted on a number of significant test cases, and we talk about those, in, the recent, in recent years, including a successful win on a refugee family reunification case in the Supreme Court in 2019, and a referral to the European Court of Justice in an EU free movement case, which is what we're really interested in as well. Karen also lectures for the Law Society of Ireland on the Certificate of Immigration Law and Practice course and for the Law School's Professional Practice course. She was admitted to the role of solicitors in February 2009 and graduated from the University College Cork in 2002 with a Bachelor of Law degree. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hi Sarah, hi Jack, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Not at all. Um, and listeners know, I, in our introduction, I've mentioned that I've known Karen for a very, very long time. Um, and at the start of my career, I think Karen, you were qualified already when I joined the practice um, as yeah. a trainee. And both of us 
really fell into, well, I fell into immigration, I suppose, as Nisha, you'd already been practicing in it and human rights cases at the time, including lots of asylum and refugee law. So we're going to just talk about a little bit about your background, um, maybe introduce yourself to our listeners and maybe give us a little bit of background as to how you got into this very niche and um, kind of special practice area of law, immigration. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Thanks. Yeah. So, um, um, well, I studied law in UCC, and um, that was a long, long time ago now. Uh, I think I finished uh, my degree in must have been in two thousand and three. Um, and at the time, I wasn't sure what area of law I wanted to get into. And while I was, um, I thought at, at that time I wanted to qualify as a solicitor. I didn't. I knew I didn't want to work doing conveyancing or maybe the more standard areas of law, but I didn't know what I wanted. So um, I suppose I headed off traveling and when I came back from traveling after a couple of years, I had a gr- an absolutely passionate interest in the world and meeting people from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I started when I came um, when I came back from traveling, basically I started volunteering. But I, I saw that um, asylum really seemed to interest me um, and I thought maybe that was the area I wanted to work in. So I started off volunteering in math. And I suppose the very first day, I kind of popped into NASC. NASC is a uh, support and NGO in Cork. In Cork um, yeah. yeah, great mm-hmm. work, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I, I popped in one day on my own and introduced myself and said I was really interested in seeing what they were doing in NASC. And I, 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 I kind of got a little bit lucky. Uh, the legal officer there took time out to talk to me and asked me to come back another day. And I started sitting in on... Um, some meetings and helping just as a volunteer but I was really transformed by my experience um the very first day I went in I remember it just felt so moved by the work that was happening by the mm. people who were there and it just and immediately I just got caught up in this um passion for yeah. asylum and human rights and yeah. that led me to um and that led me then to moving a few months later up to Dublin to do an internship in the Irish Refugee Council Mm-hmm. which um, was, it, it really got me into the whole asylum area and I was work, meeting refugees and working um, with a lot of family reunification applications for refugees. And by that stage, I was really deep into it um, and re- very passionate, very um, much, uh, uh, you know, I knew I found the area yeah. that I loved and that I wanted to use law to meet people, to help people and so on. It, and it was very, yeah. I suppose, very moving experience. You know yourself, when you were uh-huh. starting off, it was a very... It, At the beginning, it was yeah. very moving and very, I, yeah. So that and, and and so that led and then as uh, that led me into a, you know a traineeship and um, it was Brophy Solicitors, which I was very lucky to uh, get into a firm where human rights was the order. There was a lot of human rights work going on. There was asylum work going on, and you know really interesting cases yeah. were were happening in Brophy Solicitors. And I thought I was just very lucky and happy mm-hmm. to get into this area and I, I from day one working in Brophy Solicitors I was there for 10 years but from day one I knew I found the right area for yeah, me. Absolutely. I love this. And I mean start. 
you could see that when I joined the firm, you'd already been there. I worked in Brophy's too. And I guess just for listeners, Karen and I have a similar background in that I also interned with the Irish Refugee Council. And I spoke before in the show about being struck by some of the stories and the personal cases that you dealt with at a, a quite a young age and how it really grasped yeah. you, grasped me, to, you know, and uh, focused me on just being determined to work in that area. But I was very lucky because when I joined the firm, immigration had already been, you know, established by yourself and another solicitor who was there called Jan Boyle. So, and it was also a very interesting time in the development of immigration law in Ireland around, you know, citizenship, the free movement directive coming in in 2004. So we really all worked together at a very, very important time and we were able to establish our own kind of niche even within immigration law itself. So I, and I will say to listeners, the the passion that Karen just mentioned there, and we have had other solicitors like Stephen Kerr went on before from KOD Lines who works in similar areas. It's so evident and it was so obvious to me and it was so lovely to be able to sit and watch other solicitors who'd already, who, you know, are way ahead of me and had been practising in the area for a longer time, being so passionate. And that includes the barristers that we worked with as well. And so as a group, you were kind of brought into this area of law it was very niche very specialized but everybody was committed and everybody was very passionate and you still to this day Karen I mean you still have that and you've moved on now to open your own practice Berkeley Solicitors in Christchurch so maybe tell us a little bit about how you transitioned from I suppose being an employed solicitor to opening your own firm just to specialize in this area yeah 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 it was um I suppose, as you were saying there, it was kind of over the years in Brophy's, I went from working in um, asylum and uh, housing and other social welfare cases to becoming more specialised just in the area of immigration. And mm-hmm. probably EU treaty rights was the area that really um, appealed to me. Oh, well, we just got a lot of cases and we yeah. love working on the EU treaty rights cases. So we started getting quite niche into immigration. And I, as far as I know, there, you know, there was no other firm just working in immigration law in Ireland and I always had a dream that I would love to um, set up my own firm as an immigration solicitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the years you know I became very specialised in immigration mm-hmm. and I really would have loved and had a dream that I wanted to do that you know. I didn't know at the time over the years whether or not that would happen but mm-hmm. it was something I would have loved to do and then an opportunity arose and Ropey solicitors for various reasons had to close Mm -hmm. and I had the opportunity and it came at a time very unexpected because I was um, eight months pregnant at the time Um, and it was all quite sudden. That's right. (laughs) There you go. I forgot that little detail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I I just jumped at the opportunity and um, I opened my own firm, Berkeley Solicitors, and the the wonderful Emer Nugent, my colleague from Berkeley Solicitors. Yeah, we're familiar with Emer here. Amazing Emer, we will call her, yeah, Ethan Emer um, came with me. And um, Emer and I worked, we brought probably about 300 clients around that time with us. And it was like a very busy firm from day one. Very, very busy firm. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was, you know, it was from the very first day, it was just incredibly busy. And within a few weeks, it was just, the, the phone never stopped ringing. Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> and it still doesn't, you know, so yeah. hopefully. You took the chaos with I'm, you. <laughs> Well, it's organised. Organised chaos. <laughs> but that, it's fantastic. Yeah, like 
And I mean, yeah. that comes from a very, you know, building up a reputation. And there weren't that many firms, you know, when we started off practicing or specializing in immigration at all in Ireland. And I know from working in Northern Ireland two years ago, there was a handful of us, you know, but it certainly seems to have grown um, in both the North and South yeah. in terms of, um, you know, people getting more involved. So Jack is here with us, of course. And Jack is starting yeah. out on his career. You're finishing your master's. Yeah, thing? just have my dissertation to hand in um, yeah. the summer now. And that's me. So Jack, like us, is starting at a very important um, kind of crux in immigration law where we have Brexit and the whole withdrawal agreement and the immigration cases that are coming out of that. So, you know, very much, yeah. very often we know as much as each other and he's not looking at me for any type of direction because it's all so new. So what yeah. advice do you have for people like, I suppose, Jack, or do you have any questions for Karen, Jack? No, yeah, Karen, obviously the people that we speak to in this podcast have been so inspirational, but I think the main the main point for them making a change is that they've been interested in their area that they go down. So, like, I just wanted to ask you for any young students, including myself, we kind of concentrate on just getting the degree, getting the master's, and we don't concentrate on what area we're interested in. How important was yeah. it? that you were interested in the area that you've now created your own firm around? How important is it that you were interested in that specific area? Oh, yeah, Jack, it, it was um, it was vital because it was it took, I suppose, um, a lot of confidence for me to, from the very beginning, to say um, human rights asylum is my area that I want to work in because everybody was looking at me like I was crazy back then. Yeah. You know, um, certainly in Blackhall, people were like, why are you, you know, that was such an off-the-wall area yeah. to work in, you know. Um, and it wasn't established, and immigration was even more niche than then, you know. Mm -hmm. So I suppose it took a bit of confidence to say, no, this is the area I want to work in. And um, there was also I felt, a general pressure to make sure you get trained up in conveyancing and get mm -hmm. good at probate because you'll always need that to fall back on, you yeah. know, that general feeling. Yeah. And I remember saying to Kevin, my old boss, um, I think I'd prefer not to get trained up <laughs> too much in that area because I never want to fall, I never want to be able to fall back. I, I could imagine you saying so, that very clearly. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, let me get as niche and specialised as I like yeah. because I know I love this area. And sure, look, I didn't know what the future held. It mm -hmm. certainly was um, paving a new path. But I loved it so much that I was happy to do that. And also, um, so for, for, for young people getting into the area, um, um, it's much more established now. So that's, yeah. the, that's the great thing. Okay, it's much more. Nowadays, um, immigration law is, um, you can learn about it in, in many of the universities as an academic subject. Mm -hmm. If there's a, a textbook, um, you know, John Stanley has written a very a, a brilliant textbook yes. that you can learn about it. It's um, there. We, there's a lot of things happening in the area. We we are we we're setting up the Irish Immigration Lawyers Association at the moment. So mm -hmm. that's a professional network that we'll be reaching out to academic institutions and students. There's more opportunities for young people to get work experience in immigration or asylum or human rights areas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the whole area is just a lot more established. And there's a, a huge amount of judgments um, coming out of the High Court and the Court of Appeal and the Superior mm -hmm. Court. That, and young people can read about so that we can learn a lot about it through reading the judgments before you can you do any work experience you can learn about it yourself yeah and yeah. um, so i think there's a lot more opportunity now than there was um maybe 15 years ago for 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 me starting off for people to learn about it it's also the diploma course in the law society which i lecture on 
um, and the Bar the Bar Council and the Law Society both have um, diploma courses in immigration and mm-hmm. asylum yeah. that people can study. I mean, there's great support but, out there for anybody getting yeah, into Yeah, more opportunity. Yeah, yeah and, that's and, what I think, more opportunity. We've had fantastic guests on here when we think of some of the younger lawyers here on who've just qualified and are into either human rights or and immigration. Yeah. I mean, it was unheard of, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So there's definitely a growth there in the area. But as you say, Karen, there's lots of support yeah. there for people to get into it. Yeah. And... Mm-hmm. Um, Moving on, I suppose you've mentioned a lot of the cases there and there are interesting judgments. Jack and I had caught up on a few of the citizenship, Irish citizenship judgments um, over the last few, I suppose, year or two years coming out of the High Court in Dublin. But Karen, your area, you've mentioned was, um, I mean, your specialised area is EU treaty rights. And of course, you know, for listeners, that's the the law around free movement, free movement of of persons within the EU and you've been very established at working at that for years. Can you give us just a little bit of insight? I know you've been working on a number of cases and um, one in particular that we might just discuss here to give listeners an idea about the type of work that you do, the Suvon and Ali versus the Minister for Justice and Equality case. I know there were your clients and you issued proceedings around challenging a refusal yeah. of the EU residence card on the basis that, and this might be a little bit niche for listeners, but um, it's a really, really important case that they're not members of the household of the EU citizen. Can you give us a little bit of background on the outcome of that case, please? Yeah, sure, um, sure Sarah. So, so I've been working on these um, this particular type of EU treaty rights case where um, an EU citizen moves to Ireland to exercise the free movement um, as a worker or so on, mm-hmm. and then they apply for either a visa or, or a residence card for their family members. And um, the directive and the 2015 regulations divide um, family members into two groups. And we have the first group that we call the qualifying family members, which are um, automatically entitled if they fall into that group to get to join the EU citizen. But um, there's another uh, group called the permitted family members. And those family members have to go through an assessment and they have to prove um, the particular group of uh, family members I'm talking about, we would... Um, call that they have to prove that they are either dependent on the EU citizen or a member of the household of the EU citizen mm-hmm. in the country from which they came from, which is um, the home country of the family member. So if the EU citizen can prove that their family member was dependent or a member of their household in the other country from which the family member came, they also have a right to be accompanied or to join, be joined by these family members. Mm-hmm. But this has been quite a, I suppose, a contentious and complicated area for many years. And the Department of Justice have refused many of these applications over the years. And in some years, even refused all of the applications. Yes. And um, they've refused them on basis that they're not dependent or they haven't proved to provided sufficient evidence of dependency in the home country or they haven't pre- provided sufficient evidence of membership of the same household. And over the years, we've been working on these cases for many, many clients. And they've generated a lot of litigation and judicial reviews going mm-hmm. to the High Court. And so over the last few years in the High Court in Ireland, there was a holding list. Or there was a test case for the dependency cases. And that became known as the Coonan Can um, after mm-hmm. the Coonan Can case. And my case was a test case for membership of the same household. That's the Suvan and Ali case. It became mm-hmm. the test case to establish what exactly does membership of the same household mean? And and the department had um, refused my clients a residence card because they said, you're not a member of the same household mm-hmm. of the EU citizen. And they 
the reason they said that was because um, they said you didn't prove that the EU citizen was the head of the household right. in the other country. Now, head of the household was a new legal yes. test that does not appear in the law. Mm-hmm. So they had added this in as an extra requirement in the decision that it's not legally required to prove you're the head of the household. But the, but we said that the lawyers for the applicant, they are members of the same household. Mm-hmm. Here's the evidence. They lived together in, in their home country for many years. And the department said, well, no, you're not. The, it, needs, it requires more than proving you lived under the same roof. And something else is required, like um, head of the household of the EU citizen. So this became the test case um, for the membership of the same household cases. And it was unsuccessful in the high court. And it went on to the court of appeal. And there was a, a detailed judgment in the court of appeal. And again, the applicants were unsuccessful. The court of appeal again said there is something more is needed than living under the roof, mm-hmm. same roof something to do with the centrality of life of the EU citizen, that they have to have this family member living there. Again, mm-hmm. adding in, well, in our opinion, adding in another, te- maybe another test that doesn't appear in the law. Yeah. So we appealed that to the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court heard the case, and it was a very interesting, um, I suppose in the Supreme, Supreme Court, the judges required um, evidence or on affidavit as, as what, how are the other EU countries interpreting this phrase membership of the same household mm-hmm. so we put in an affidavit and we got 20 uh, something translations of all the different EU countries and how they'd all um, translated this phrase and so I mean, there was funny all the different variations mm-hmm. of what does membership of the, same, of the same household mean and some were interpreted to say living with the EU citizens some were saying you know and yeah. they all had different variations of it so in the end, it was clear even to the Supreme Court that the phrase membership of the same household isn't, and it hadn't been interpreted by any mm. EU court judgment. So therefore, they made, um, they made a, uh, in December 2020, the Supreme Court determined that they needed to make a preliminary reference to the European Court of Justice mm-hmm. to ask for um, an interpretation of this law. What does, and so the, the, the question that was referred was, is there, can a definition for membership of the same household be provided so that it, it can be implemented in the EU, you know, in, in, a, in the same way? Mm-hmm. And if no definition can be provided, then how is a court in, in a, a domestic court to interpret and assess these cases? Mm-hmm. So, the, the, so that was recently enough that it, the, um, uh, the reference was made in December. So it's still pending it's in pending. the European Court, and we're right. awaiting, yeah, we're awaiting a decision. Uh, sorry, we're awaiting a judge, um, a hearing, I should say. Sorry. It's so interesting. It strikes me on two points really. Number one, the phrase is membership of a of the household, of the same household, and how that. I mean, your affidavit there speaks for itself, and getting all of those translations and interpretations across the member states put forward um, for that one phrase. But this is typical of the development of the vast array of EU case law. Let's, you know, but just even just zooming in on free movement and how decades of case law has been built up to determine words, interpretation of phrases, etc, etc. And what we're dealing with here, I suppose, in the North, um, in terms of the whole Brexit and departure from the EU, is a whole unravelling of that law and we're in a very difficult transitionary period still I know technically the transition period's over but it isn't really because we're still grappling with this phrase itself we're still dealing aren't we Jack with clients who you know have been refused because they're not held as um 
members of the same household and they would need to have a relevant EEA document, which is a residency card, before they proceed to yeah. what's now called the EU Settlement Scheme. But it just, it's, it's yeah. quite sad as well, isn't it, to realise yeah. that lawyers, barristers, um, all of these test cases going forward, preliminary references, rulings from the, um, the European Court of Justice as well, and you know, to build up case law that really impacts, I mean, your case there could impact thousands and thousands of people, thousands of families. Um, and it's just sad to see that really coming to an end here. For here, yeah. But we're still dealing with the aftermath of that. So that's just one example, I guess. Um, and when do you expect that to come through, Karen? Or, you know, is I would say in the next few months, we, we, should, we should have a hearing date. But I okay. hope in the next few months. We have, we'll have a hearing date. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we look forward to that. Yeah, and I on. wonder, will it have yeah. any um, bearings here? I'm not sure how that might work, but um, Jack, it'll be interesting for us to follow up yep, on that. Definitely. And just moving away slightly, yeah. I know there are other, I mean, immigration is so niche. And um, that's one example there of how um, kind of specific you can be. But also just looking at the um, Refugee Act, the 1996 Act, and I know you did a lot around previously around um, family reunification, Karen. Um, you have yep. another case there, which was really recent, wasn't it? Um, I think it was summer last year. Um, MAM Somalia. You might just give readers, our listeners, a yeah. little bit of background. Yeah, yeah that was another uh, uh, quite um, a significant case which we worked on, which um, ended up um, with a successful judgment in the Supreme Court last year in 2020. And this case <laughs> related to... Um, a, a refugee who applied for family reunification under the old law, the 1996 Act, which has re- more recently been updated to the 2015 International Protection Act. But under the older Act, um, refugees had an entitlement to apply for family reunification with certain family members. And the, the, the case related to the question about whether um, a refugee still has that right to family reunification when they become a naturalised Irish citizen. Yes. Um, because the, the department had been interpreted for, for many years, had interpreted the law such that a refugee continued to have their right to family reunification after they naturalised. But then they did a, a complete U-turn, and in somewhere in around 2017, they started to refuse any naturalised refugee they actually deemed their application ineligible because they were now an Irish citizen. And they said, as an, as an Irish citizen, you're not entitled to rely on the refugee law. Mm. So, so a complete U-turn. And there was probably about 100 refugees, um, wow. maybe around a group of 100 who got refused 2017-2018 period. Um, so we issued proceedings on many of these cases and challenged the department. And uh, there was about 40 or 50 cases went to the High Court. Mm-hmm. And one of my cases, it was the Nazarova KN, and two cases went forward as a test case. One of them was mine, um, um, a family from Uzbekistan, and there was a, a family from Somalia that went forward as the test cases. Mm-hmm. And they went again, lost in the High Court, lost in the Court of Appeal, but they were ultimately successful in the Supreme Court. And I mean, it was a really interesting case in the Supreme Court because the state were arguing that in or, um, a, 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 when a refugee becomes an Irish citizen, they're they are no longer um, they no longer fit the definition of a refugee yeah. because they're not outside of their country of nationality, mm-hmm. which is the basic definition of a refugee. Mm-hmm. While uh, we were arguing that they, as, even though they're an Irish citizen, they still have nationality of their home country and they're still outside of that country 
of nationality and their family circumstances and their risk of persecution doesn't mm-hmm. change. And it became um, a, a detailed judgment about statutory interpretation, but ultimately the Supreme Court held firmly and absolutely in favour of the applicants based on statutory interpretation, wow. and they won. So in winning, it was an, a really quite a wonderful and um, inspiring judgment and affected all the families in that holding list in about 50 cases that then were able to settle and we've since gone through the process and that family reunification granted for many families. So I, I, I'm delighted and very proud of that. Yeah, I mean, you that should be. The, the issue is always a live one. And it it was always so disheartening when somebody, you know, managed to secure their citizenship after waiting for so long um, and then lost that right. And I remember dealing with it so often. So that is such a turnaround, huge, um, yeah. and really brings yeah. legal certainty to that whole area. So well And done. Karen, you're, you're speaking about a couple of your cases there I was just wondering you're mentioning yeah. that it was a test case could you explain like yeah. to me and to the listeners as well what do you mean by the case being a test case yeah sure and um, oftentimes when um there is a contentious legal point that um in immigration or asylum that um the department is making a decision to refuse an applicant based on a certain legal ground and that's a contentious legal ground that as applicant lawyers we feel is maybe not lawful. Oftentimes, many applicants issue judicial review proceedings on the same legal point. So uh, over the course of a number of years, there could be a a growing number of cases going into the High Court all the time on the same legal point. So the the procedure here in the High Court is that they don't allow all those cases, like 150 cases on the same point, they don't all go on to a hearing. What happens is the case is going to um, a holding list mm-hmm. and one or two or three in sometimes cases are chosen by the judge to go forward as a, as a test case. And then the the test case will have an impact on all the other cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So usually if the test case is successful, what usually happens is agreements and arrangements mm-hmm. and settlement arrangements are made with the others. Um, or if the test case is unsuccessful, Oftentimes, in a, in a test case, it will go on to the higher course and on to maybe the Court of Appeal yeah. or the Supreme Court. I know you have a blog on your website and it details a lot of your success stories and the firm's success stories. But what are you working on at the minute? Is there anything interesting or anything coming up that we should tune into in terms of your case law at the moment? I know you always have something. <laughs> well, actually, Sarah, it's... it's, it's Today is quite an interesting day in our office because we're applying for the first time to bring a case to the European Court of Human Rights, which is um, an amazing opportunity for us as uh, human rights lawyers. And the case that we're applying to the Court of Human Rights is to do with, uh, again, it's a refugee family reunification case. And it goes back, again, it has a long history. Um, it's reg- the case concerns a challenge to the new family reunification law that was implemented in the 2015 Act. And, and in the 2015 Act, um, Section 56 severely curtails the rights of refugees to apply for family reunification, so much so that um, own, a refugee can only apply for a spouse if they were married before the date they applied for protection. And Section 56 also um, uh, curtails refugees for applying for family reunification within the first 12 months of the date they get their declaration. So after 12 months, they're they're absolutely ineligible for, to apply for even for a child. So mm-hmm. these are hu- huge, severe restrictions on the rights of refugees 
to family reunification, okay? So that over the last few years has resulted in many challenges. And again, there was a tech case that went to the Supreme Court. It was not my case. It was the AESI case. Or there were three different cases went to the Supreme Court. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court held on um, against the applicants and upheld uh, the legality of Section 56. And they distinguished um, this these cases from uh, specific uh, judgments from the European Court of Human Rights about Article 8, and they distinguished it from Adzi and Hodi, and the refugees lost. And it was very, very, very disappointing. Um, so we have, well, we have a brilliant barrister, Michael Lynn, working on one of mm-hmm. my cases, and Michael um, and, and the other barristers um, were continuing the fight against um uh, this section, and we're going to bring an application for a client to the European Court of Brilliant. Human Rights, arguing a breach of Article 8. Mm. So that's wow. what we're working on at the moment. Fantastic. And I mean, as well, a great legal team, I think a great force to be reckoned with Michael in there as well, who is, you know, has been fundamental in the development of um, human rights, specifically within the immigration and refugee law context. So that's so interesting. And we'll definitely keep in touch with you about how how you're getting on around that. Yeah. I mean, that's an issue that's been going on, as you said, for a very long time. Yeah. So, so much yeah. happening there. Definitely, Karen. yeah. And obviously, we can't ignore that we're on the Activist Lawyer podcast, Karen. So I just wanted to ask you, how important is activism to you? Especially, obviously, you're a solicitor, so I wanted to ask you, how important is activism to you in the face of negative commentary yeah. towards the mm-hmm. legal profession? And there's been a lot in the South recently as yeah, well. Yeah. Not just here. Well, we've had such a, 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 yeah, I mean, we've had such such difficulties in our area over the last few years working um, with some, uh, I suppose, um, a kind of an idea that um, some of the cases going into the High Court are not justified or legitimate or shouldn't have been brought in or Mm -hmm. some of the applicants haven't been um, truthful in their uh, proceedings in the High Court and this resulted in a uh, very um, strict practice direction being brought into our court, the Asylum and Immigration Court, a couple of years ago, which put huge onuses on the applicant solicitors to attend, um, to swear affidavits and to adhere to certain truths that their mm. clients were saying. And that's uh, targeted at our area, not at any other area in of any practitioners and solicitor in law. So that's the kind of, um, we, that's, uh, but we have to, I suppose, come together as a group of practitioners uh, to try to deal with this and to try to advocate for ourselves and stand up for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we have brought our issues to the attention of the law society and to the attention of the judges and so on. And we've had many meetings. And all of this has resulted um, in the formation of an association, which is happening at the moment, um, the Irish Immigration Lawyers Association, which... Um, uh, we are now open for membership, and we're um, we are formed a committee to represent mm-hmm. ourselves for 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 activism, really, you know, yeah. and to be able to stand up for ourselves as a group. And I think mm-hmm. that's a huge, um, great, a great consequence of that that we have formed this yeah. association. It's huge, yeah. and I'm I'm looking forward to actually joining that group too. Um, and I think it's yeah, very, very right. timely as well. And, you know, it's seeing immigration as a very specialised and very important area of law, which it, it hadn't really been seen as before. So that's that's a massive move. And just, um, I suppose, looking at your background and 
um, the passion that got you into where you are at the moment. Activism has always been a part of that, I guess, with, I suppose you did a lot of voluntary work, I know, with uh, Free Legal Advice Centre and other organisations too. Do you think it's all encompassing in terms of, you know, it's not just about showing up at work every day, nine to five, you know, doing your, your job. There's much more to it in terms of, you know, getting to know people and um, volunteering, uh, attending meetings, yeah. I'd say, you know, how if somebody yeah. wants to get into the area or is active around immigration, how would you advise them to, you know, take those steps forward? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I um, well, I would say, and uh, like I would adv- advise any um younger person or who's interested in trying to get into this area to start um getting out there and meeting people and speaking to people and um asking to get work experience in offices, um even if it's just for a short while. I think uh, you only get if you ask and you put yeah. yourself out there. And I think as you know, I have met so many great people over the years and um it's i know it's really hard to get work experience but i do think um having an internship or even something less even if a couple of weeks just working in an office to start getting experience um would it put, gives a great step up yeah. if you're going for interviews for a job i think so having the academic background is great but mm-hmm. it really gives you a step up if you have some sort of work experience and also it helps to just network and meet people and talk to people you know to get in there um yeah yeah. and i hope in our new association the irish immigration lawyers Mm -hmm. association association we're going to reach out to universities we're going to um try to you know i i mean i i do a lecture a few lectures in the law society i i do lectures with the ppc1 students um, and who are training to be solicitors and i tell them all about immigration law Mm -hmm. and what it is like to work in this area i could see myself doing that in in other law schools around the country and maybe other solicitors would be open to doing that too and we can make links with the university we want to promote our area we want to encourage young people to learn about it and get into it we're open to that and i hope the members of our association might also be open to maybe you know doing work having people in for work experience and so on so these are ideas we can explore yeah it's very exciting it's really exciting times and it's great that you and a number of other lawyers are getting together to to start that really great work yeah um, yeah. Well, look, I am just delighted to have had you on. We could talk all day like we usually will, but next time I think when I see you, hopefully it's over a pint <laughs> or two <laughs> in Dublin. And I know we're wow. going to end up talking about work, as we always do, about immigration, etc. Um, yeah. But it's been too long and with lockdown and babies, etc, etc. So I'm dying for a catch-up. And it's yeah. been great to have you so on today. And I know you're, you're so, so busy. And it sounds like everything's going fantastic and say hi to Emer for us um, in the firm but thank you Karen for giving up your time today yeah, thank you very much Karen uh, listen and Sarah and Jack thank you so much for inviting me on and I just oh. wanted to say you're well done on this podcast I really enjoyed listening to it it's been fantastic and really interesting speakers and it's so great to have the opportunity to hear other people working in the area it's been you know it's been really fantastic so well done to you two for having such a great podcast thank you thank you for having me on thank you so much all right thanks again everyone for listening to this week's episode of the activist lawyer podcast we hope you enjoyed it and if you'd like to listen to any of our previous guests you can find all of our episodes on both spotify and apple podcasts To stay up to date with our upcoming episodes and blog posts, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We really appreciate all of the support 
and we will see you next time on the new episode of Activist Lawyer. Thanks. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com. 